Go ahead and uh, take them to class at this time. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Cole, he shared with us uh, probably one of the most discouraging passages uh, in the scriptures. It it just is. And and Cole did a wonderful job, as always, of pointing our eyes to the Lord, helping us to see the beauty of God through it. But in terms of passages that that just make you feel like, what in the world is wrong with people? Like this passage in Genesis 16 that Cole preached through, it it tops the list, I think, at least for me. And, And we all have situations like this, where you just think to yourself, like, what is wrong with human beings? You know, sometimes... Like, just kind of watching kids, and they're kind of playing around. They don't really know that I'm watching them. And then all of a sudden, you see the finger come out and go up the nose. And they pull it out, and it's just a big, wet, green booger. And then all of a sudden, they just pop it in their mouth. And you think, what in the world? Like, what? Like why is that our impulse? Like, why, why, where did we learn that? Who taught you that? Why did you do that? And, and we all have these situations with people where you just think, like, what is wrong with us? Why? And I think Genesis 16, for me, it's one of those situations where you just, you're observing what's going on. And you're just thinking, like, God, how could you ever love human beings? What is wrong with us? If you're not familiar with Genesis 16, it's a situation where Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they've been given these, like, wonderful, incredible promises from God. And Abraham has grown in his faith. God has led him. He, he, is, he has been strengthened in his faith. And God has come to him over and over again to remind him of his precious promises that he has for, for them. And the blessing that God is going to be. And he, he has promised him offspring and land. And in light of all of that, Abraham, he's 86 years old at the time. He looks at his wife, Sarah, and he says, you know what, baby? Like, you still look good, (laughs) but I'm just not quite sure that the promises are going to be fulfilled through you. And they hatch this plan together. They say, look, God, he's promised us offspring, land, but I'm just not sure it's going to happen through you. And so they they look at each other, they hatch this plan where what's going to happen is they're going to take a slave, their, their servant, Hagar. And Sarah, it's even her idea, her suggestion she says, Abraham, why don't you just go sleep with her so that we can have the son that God has promised us, so that God's promises can be expedited because I don't think it's going to happen through you. And so Abraham does. He sleeps with Hagar. She gets pregnant. She has a son named Ishmael. And obviously, like when you impregnate a woman who's not your wife, there's going to be drama. With the one who is your wife. And this huge mess unfolds. And it begins in Genesis 16. And and where we leave off in Genesis 16. Is not with any sort of resolution. Between Abraham and Sarah and the Lord. The Lord comes down and comforts Hagar. We see that. But in terms of their relationship with one another. Or or Abraham's relationship with God himself. Really what we're left with. Is just a feeling of disgust. Disappointment. Discouragement. What are you doing, Abraham? He's rejected God's promise. He's rejected God's design for marriage. He's rejected God's authority in ways that wouldn't have just lowered his credibility, 
Like if this happened in our church, we would be talking about expulsion, removal. And then here's the deal. Genesis 16 comes to close. You know what happens? Life just goes on. Life moves forward. And for 13 years, between Genesis 16 and Genesis 17, it is utter silence between God and Abraham. As far as we know, Abraham is in utter silence from the Lord. 13 years. 13 years for life to just move on. This huge act of disobedience, of disgusting sin. 13 years of silence now for Abraham's heart to either grow harder more bitter, more entrenched in his sin, or to be tender, humble, soft towards God. Thirteen years for Abraham to be just dying under the weight of shame and guilt, or to be humbled and move towards God, move towards him in his grace. Thirteen years for Abraham really to fill in the gaps of the silence and separation that exists in his relationship with God. Fill in the gaps of, of the questions that no doubt weighed on his mind. Like, what does God think of me now? What is God's attitude towards me? I've blown it. I have sinned against him. What does God think of me now? Is God still going to work through me? Does God hate me? Is God about to kill me? Does God care about me anymore? Is he punishing me? Does he forgive me? Thirteen years for that tension to percolate. Thirteen years of absolute silence. And then it is God himself who comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 and breaks the silence. And that's the text that we're going to be in today. It's Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. I want you, if you've got a Bible with you, take it out. Or if you've got a scripture journal with you, take it out. We're going to be in the Word together. We're going to spend our time lingering on the text together today in Genesis 17. And we'll begin by just reading through this passage of how God breaks the silence with Abraham. It says this, when Abram was 99 years old, remember he was 86 when we last saw him. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram, he fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, my covenant is with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram, but your name will be Abraham. For I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. I will make nations and kings come from you, Abraham. I will keep my covenant between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as an eternal possession, and I will be their God. 
This morning, I want to give you four observations from our text about how God breaks the silence between himself and Abraham. And in doing that, we're also going to draw application to our own lives. But before we apply it, we need to understand it. Okay, And so we will begin simply by making observations in God's word. Observation number one, the silence is broken through the comfort of his presence. God, he comes to Abraham, he breaks through the silence through the comfort of his presence. He assures him with his presence. Abraham, I, I want to be with you. I am for you. I, I want you to live with me in my presence and to be blameless. I want to be near you, Abraham. Isn't that what he's saying in verse 1? He, he says, Abraham, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I want you to be near me. I want you to live with me. Do you see the kindness of that? It's an invitation from God. Just be close to me. Has anybody ever let you live with them? We have a couple who's living with us for the next couple of months. You know why we asked them to live with us? It's actually because they asked to live with us, but they didn't have any other options. But the reason we said yes is because we love them. We want to be near them. We want to spend time with them. We're for them. God, he invites us in. He says, no, I, like, I want you to be in my space. I, I want you to be where I am. To Abraham. I mean, think of where we left off. Just disgusting sin from Abraham. Rejecting God's Design, his promise, his authority. God doesn't say, you, you need to earn me back. He says, no, come live in my presence. And be holy like me. Be blameless. I don't hate you, Abraham. You sinned against me. You rejected my promise. You rejected my authority, but I don't hate you. In fact, I want to be close with you. I want you to live with me. My heart is for you. What an incredible insight for us to see into the heart of God. How many of you had, had times in your life where, where you have felt distant from God, separated from God, felt like there's silence between you and God? Maybe like Abraham, it's come after a period of sin. Rejecting God, rejecting his design, rejecting his authority. And then you feel the silence, the separation. How tempting and how easy it is to fill in the gaps with all kinds of assumptions about God. A God, you don't care about me. When we feel like God is silent, it's so easy to fill in the gaps with these thoughts that like God, you couldn't possibly love me. God, you must be mad at me. You must hate me. Probably the last person in the world you want to see, God. But when God breaks the silence with Abraham, what's incredibly clear is this. The, the consistent, steady heartbeat of God is and has been. You're mine, Abraham. I want you to live with me. I want you to be with me. I'm for you. 
And you see, we don't know anything about the relationship of Abraham with the Lord over those 13 years of silence. We get no window into that relationship between Abraham and God. But I'll tell you this. It is almost entirely dependent on what Abraham assumed about God during that time. When there is silence, his relationship, his walk with the Lord, his heart towards God, it's almost entirely dependent upon... What does he assume to be true about God? About the heart of God, the promise of God, the character of God. See, we we all have times like this in our relationships with one another and in our relationships with God. Where there is silence or separation. And it's what we do to fill in those gaps that determines so much about the health of of our relationships with God and with one another. And you know, most of our lives, they are spaces of silence and separation. That's just what it is. Even in our relationship with God. Good, bad, or otherwise, my observation is this. Most Christians, they would tell you that most of their day is not spent actively hearing from God. Good, bad, or otherwise, I'm just saying by observation, most Christians, if they're honest, they would tell you, most of my day is not spent actively hearing from God. There is a bit of silence, separation. Or in other ways, another way to say it would be there's a busyness of life. But what do we do filling in the gaps? What do we assume about God? His character, his heart. In the silence. Kent Hughes, he's a Bible commentator. He said this about our thoughts towards God. He says, the way we live, it's determined by what we think of God. The the way that we actually function and live, it's determined by what we do to fill in the gaps. You see, if our lives are only dictated by what God actually says in his word, like we would have the most healthy, vibrant, fruitful relationship with God that you could possibly imagine. Because all that God has said... It is actually good news about him and about his care for us, his desire to be with us, his willingness to sacrifice his own son so that we can have forgiveness and grace and life in him. If all we did was to God at his word, our relationships with God would be perfect. But when they're not, it has to do with how we're filling in the gaps. What are your assumptions about the character of God, the heart of God, when you're not hearing from Him actively? And again, this principle, it's true, not only in our relationship with God, but in our relationships with one another. What are you doing to fill in the gaps? See, most of our relational conflict, it has almost nothing to do with things that happen when we're face-to-face. Like I was trying to think about it this week. I thought to myself, when is the last time that I actually had like an interaction with somebody where like I intentionally was hurtful towards them or they intentionally were hurtful towards me? And I, I, I'm sure it's happened before, but I could not come up with a single example. But if you were to ask me, hey, are there any relationships in in your life where there's maybe a little bit of tension or it's not very healthy? I mean, if I were to ask you that question, are there any relationships in your life where it's not very healthy? There's some tension. There's some friction. 
You'd probably say, yeah. But if you really sit down and think about it, it is not so much about everything that happens when we're face to face. Oftentimes, it is much more about how our mind is filling in the gaps when we're separated, when there's silence. What do I believe about you? See, it's easy for my mind to fill in the gaps with all kinds of wrong assumptions. You're down on me. You hate me. You think poorly of me. You don't love me. You don't understand me. But all those assumptions, they're straight from the pit of hell. That's what they are. But it's easy for our minds to go there, to fill in the gaps with all kinds of wrong assumptions. But God, he comes to Abraham and he breaks that silence. It's like, I don't, I don't know how Abraham is filling in the gaps, but God is so quick to assure him Abraham, I'm for you. There's been silence, but I'm not down on you. I don't hate you. I don't want to kill you. I am not done with you. I want you to be with me. Observation number two. God, he comforts Abraham with the certainty of his covenant, the certainty of his promises. God breaks the silence with Abraham. He comforts him with his presence. He says, be with me. And then he comforts him with his promises, the certainty of his covenant. And here's the exercise I want us to go through together. If you've got a Bible or if you've got a scripture journal, I want you to take it out. If you've got a pen or a pencil, sharpen it. Get it ready. And here's what we're going to do. I just want you to walk through the text with me. And what you can do is you can just circle, underline, highlight, whatever you want to do. Every I will in this passage. I want us to see the certainty of God's covenant with Abraham. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. God said, as for me, my covenant is with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram, but your name will be Abraham. For I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. And I will make nations and kings come from you. I will keep my covenant between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as an eternal possession, and I will be their God. Eight times in eight verses, God says to Abraham, I will. I will, Abraham. This is what I will do for you, Abraham. And God's promises there, they are absolutely incredible. And keep in mind, where do we last see Abraham? Where do we last see him? 13 years ago, stepping out of wedlock, sleeping with a woman who was not Sarah, getting her pregnant, and then bearing a son who, by all means, 
it seems Abraham was not a very good father too. And there is no doubt, don't hear me wrong on this point, there is no doubt that Abraham's sin caused all kinds of destruction and chaos and devastation in his own life and in the lives of people that he should have been a blessing to. There are consequences to sin, so don't hear me wrong on this point. Abraham's sin has devastating consequences just like sin always does. And yet, you need to see this, the most important things in life, they are always accomplished by our gracious God, not by sinful man. The most significant, important, cherished, treasured, meaningful things in life. They are always accomplished by our very gracious God. Not by sinful man. And neither hell nor high water can stand against the power of God's grace. Yes, Abraham sinned. Yes, it was horrible. Yes, it was destructive. Devastating. And he lived in that. But you've got to see that God is greater. His grace is greater. And he remained faithful to his covenant. And the most important things in your life are being accomplished and will be accomplished by our gracious God, not by you. It doesn't remove our call or our responsibility to be faithful. But God holds the world in his hands, not you. God comes to Abraham. He says, I will multiply you. I will bless the nations through you. I will make kings and nations come from you. I will give you offspring. I will give you the land. I will be their God. Not you, Abraham. That's not on you. And this is always true in our lives. Who is it that keeps your heart beating in your chest? Is it you? No. It is God and God alone who saves human beings from eternal hell and then gives them eternal life. Is it you? Who accomplishes that? I mean, what a ridiculous thought to think that we could save ourselves from the eternal hell that we have earned and then give ourselves eternal life. We can't even give ourselves temporary life. Who is it that accomplishes our salvation It's not you. Who is it that accomplishes the work of sanctification? Who makes you like Jesus Christ? Is it you? Again, what a ridiculous thought. I I can't keep myself from sinning for a single day. It is God who will finish the work that he has started. The most important things in your life, the things that you do care about the most and should care about the most, God himself accomplishes by his own means, by his own grace, by his own power. What a comfort. God comes to Abraham and he reminds him, you don't hold the world in your hands. You, you aren't just going to cause the world to implode. You can't do it. I will hold you. I will bless you. I will accomplish my purposes. And then third is this, the changed identity. I want us to see God didn't just gave, give Abraham a promise for things, land, wealth, possessions, He changed his very nature. He changed his whole identity, who he is. He says, Abram, that's not who you are anymore. 
You have a new identity in me. He breaks 13 years of silence where Abraham could have just been hanging his head in shame. He says, this is not you any longer. You have a new identity in me. And this is what God does. This is the power of the gospel. The the power of the gospel is not just that God promises us some sort of health and wealth. He changes our very nature. He makes us a brand new creation. He does what you could never hope to do. You couldn't make yourself a new person. God does. Through the power of Christ. He comes to Abraham. He says, you will no longer be Abram. Genesis 17, 5. You, your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. Abraham means the father of the multitude, the father of many nations. He says, look, here's the deal. You have a new identity. You are a new person. And every time someone comes to you, they will say this. Hey, father of many nations, how you doing today? Hey, father of many nations, could I borrow your truck this weekend? Hey, hey, father of many nations, how's it going? And I'm not saying our whole identity is wrapped up in a name, but when God gives you a new name, he is giving you a new identity. He came to Simon. He said, Simon, that's a good name. But that's not who you are. You are Peter. You are a rock. Not in yourself. In yourself, you're a coward who's going to reject me and deny me in front of a little girl. But that's not who you are in me. You are Peter. You are the rock. I will build my church on the rock. The gates of Hades couldn't prevail against it. James, John, good strong names, I like those, but you are the sons of thunder. That's who you are in me. Gives them a new identity. And you see this whole passage. God, he comes to Abraham. He breaks 13 years of silence. Comforts him in his presence. He says, be with me. He confirms the certainty of his promises to him. He transforms his whole identity. All of that is just an incredible picture of the kindness of God's grace. That's what it is. Observation number four. The kindness of God's grace. Abraham didn't deserve God's favor. He did not deserve God's comforting presence. Abraham did not deserve to be the father of many nations. He did not earn that. He didn't deserve to have kings and offspring come from him. He certainly didn't deserve a new identity and to be righteous before God. Abraham didn't deserve any of that. Abraham's actions, study them carefully. Abraham's actions... His attitude, his own behavior, they earned him nothing short of the terrible wrath of God. You should study Genesis and come to no other conclusion. The actual life of Abraham, his actions, they earned him nothing short of the pits of hell. But God in his grace came to Abraham and he gave him as a gift of his own grace. Righteousness he could have never earned. As a gift he gave him promises that Abraham could have never deserved. 
He gave him life and a new identity. He gave him his very presence. He said, be with me. Be blameless like me. If you want to know how this passage applies to our lives, it is this. This is the crux of it all. It's right here. It's in the kindness of God's grace. You see, no matter what you think about your life or yourself or your own moral character, it is, it, it is so easy for us to just subtly feel entitled to the good life. At the very least, to feel entitled to like health. You know, I got sick this past week. It's like, what did I do to deserve that, God? It's so easy to just subtly feel entitled to safety or stability for our plans to kind of go the way we think they ought. And it is certainly easy to feel entitled that when I die, I'm going to go to a better place. Like at the very least, I'm moving on from here to something better. But that is not what my own moral character deserves at all. That is not what my own actions, my own attitudes, my own affections have earned by any stretch of the imagination. I am way more wicked, self-centered, self-righteous, and proud than any of you could fully grasp. And so are you. And I don't even, you know, you can look to the scriptures and find that out. Paul, he tells us, every single one of us is dead in our sin under the wrath of God. Every single one of us has earned the wrath of God because of our sin. But I don't even think you have to look to the scriptures to find that out. Just look to your own life. Look to your own heart. Pay attention. Look, I get angry at my own kids. How disgusting is that? I'm unrighteous towards my own wife. How disgusting is that? I assume bad things about people who actually love me. I think the world revolves around me. I think everybody should care for me more than I care for them. I think everybody should notice and realize when I'm having a bad day, even when I don't Notice or care or realize when they're having a bad day. I am so full of self-centeredness and self-righteousness. For those of you who are in Christ, I would be willing to guess the longer that you have followed Jesus, the more you realize with absolute certainty our worthiness of hell. And if you think that statement is overstated, if it sounds overstated to you that we deserve the terror of God's wrath, I'll just say this. Most people, they remain non-Christians because they cannot believe that they actually deserve the terror of God's wrath. That is the bar- that's the faith barrier. That's what it is. Most of the world Believes in some form of higher power. Most of the world has a belief in God. But most cannot possibly fathom that they actually deserve the terrifying wrath of God 
And there's utterly nothing that they could do to stop deserving that. So many religious systems, they are built on a belief that somehow, some way, you could become fit for heaven. And yet, it is despite the fact that we actually deserve the terrifying wrath of God. That God in His grace has come to us in the comfort of His own presence with promises of His salvation through faith in Christ. God Himself has come to us and He has said, I will remember your sins no more. I will remember your sins no more. I will remove your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. I will make you a new creation in Christ. That's what I will do because you could never do it. I will write my laws on your heart. I will do that. I will give you a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. I will because you can't. I will give you my spirit as a down payment, as a seal of the inheritance that you could never earn. I will give you my very precious promises, which have everything you need for life and godliness. I will give you a hundred times more in this life for everything that you sacrificed for me. And in the life to come, eternal life. I will make you sons and daughters. I will call you friend. I will always be with you, even to the very end. And I will give you eternal life. I will wipe away every tear. I'll take away your sorrow. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And I will do it because you never could. I will do it through the death and resurrection of my own son. Jesus Christ. I will do it, says the Lord. All you must do is receive my grace. Christian, the call to action is this. Worship at the grace of God. Do not let the beauty of God's grace be lost on your soul. You know what worship affects? It affects everything. Worship affects everything in your life. What do you think your actions flow from? What do you think your attitudes flow from? It is worship. It is not your circumstances. See, when you worship control, certainly your circumstances will remind you that you are not in control. And your attitude will be poor when you realize you don't have the control that you worship and desire. But the problem is not your circumstances. The problem is who you worship and what you worship. Our worship, it, it dictates our lives, our attitudes, our affections, our attitudes. We must worship Jesus. We must Marvel at the grace of God if we are going to be people who worship Christ. You know what God's grace is like? This is what God's grace is like. Imagine this for a second. I just want you to imagine this. 
I know it's hard to imagine. But just imagine one night, I got drunk, and I went out in my beat-up 2007 rusty Corolla, and you had a brand new 2023 Escalade parked on the side of my street, and I got drunk, I went out in my rusty 2007 Corolla, and I came tearing down the road, and I smashed into your brand new 2023 Escalade. Totally destroyed it. And I'm in the hospital. And you find out, I don't even have insurance. And so in this situation, you're totally hosed. Your car's destroyed. I've got no insurance to cover it. You know, what's fair would be you'd probably sue me. So that you could... Get a new 2023 Escalade. I'd probably end up in jail. I'd be fair. Now forgiveness. Forgiveness might look something like this. You overlook the offense. Say no. I'll cover the cost of the Escalade. I'm not going to press charges. I won't sue you. Let's just wipe the slate clean. We'll move forward. Do you know what grace is like? You replace that 2023 Escalade. You find out I don't have any insurance. I have no way of replacing my own 2007 rusty beat up Corolla. You look at me, you realize you're never going to be able to pay for a new vehicle. You don't have one. Here's my Escalade. It's yours. You realize you didn't have any insurance. You don't have any health insurance. You can't cover the cost of your medical bills. Like you're going to be in here the rest of your life. You're going to die in here. You have no hope of paying you cover the cost of my medical bills. And then you take me to physical therapy. You, you help me learn how to walk again. And then you teach me how to drive. And then you hold me accountable to never do it drunk again. You see, that's what God's grace is like. He doesn't just wipe the slate clean. He gives us what we never had in the first place. You never had the righteousness of Christ. You never had that. And you sinned. You rejected God. And he says, I will give you the righteousness of Christ. And I'll pay for it. You never had the inheritance of Christ's riches. And you sinned. He says, I will give you the riches of my son's inheritance. And I'll pay for it. In my own body. In my own blood. 
even though you sinned against God. God has said, I will give you eternal life. I will make you son and daughter. I will call you friend. I will be with you always. You come live with me and be blameless. And for that, we ought to worship God with everything that we have. I want us to take some time here this morning as we close. Worshiping the grace of God through the Lord's Supper. Why? Because the Lord's Supper reminds us of the cost that God himself paid that we could have eternal life. His grace is not cheap. It is costly. It is costly grace. And it is through the elements of the Lord's Supper that we remember. See, it's his body that has been broken. It is his own blood that has been shed that he has given as the payment so that we could experience all the riches of the treasures of eternal life in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, I want you to join me this morning taking communion. If you are not a believer in Christ, you need to abstain from the elements. You need to let the cup pass. But you need to consider the promise of God, the treasure of Christ, the gift of His grace. But if you are in Christ then remember the cost of His grace this morning through the Lord's Supper. The elements are under the seat in front of you. You can take them at this time. The cup representing His blood shed for us. The bread, His body, which was broken for us. And I want us to take a few minutes here. Celebrate. Worship. Thank the Lord for what He has done and do it in His presence as we commune with Him by the elements that He has given us. I will lead us in prayer. Then you can spend a few minutes at your seat in prayer as well, in communion with the Lord and with one another. And we will close our time singing to one another and to the Lord of His marvelous grace. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. God, thank You for Your presence, for Your grace, for the gift of Your mercy. God, thank You that You didn't just wipe the slate clean. God, You gave us what we did not previously have, the righteousness of Christ, the riches of Christ. And Lord, may the nations know Your grace. God, may You use our church. Use Your people who are here, God, to proclaim Your excellencies everywhere to everyone. No exceptions, God. Help us. God, to worship you rightly, God. And may a part of our worship be the proclamation of your gospel to all the ends of the earth, God. Give us strength to do that, God. Strengthen us through communion, God. Encourage us through your body and your blood. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.